Sanders. Please welcome Jessica and Neffy. You heard, my name is Nephi Anderson, and this is a brand new episode of the Path Less Traveled series, a web series spotlighting millennial entrepreneurs who successfully turned their passion into a lucrative career. Each episode is packed with actionable advice for your start, run, or grow your business. Today's guest is writer, philanthropist, technologist, Jessica Santana. Now, I know you, you heard a little spiel, but let me give you the run down on Jessica, okay? <laughs> Jessica is most known for being the co-founder of New York on Tech, which is a nonprofit organization that provides opportunities for minority students to gain the knowledge, the resources, and the mentorship they need in order to gain competitive edge in the technology field. Now, I know you're looking at her like, mm, Jessica, she kind of looked familiar. Like, did I see her in the bathroom? Did I sit next to her on the bus? <laughs> well, if she looks familiar to you, it's because Jessica is on this year's Forbes list. That's right. Jessica is on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. That's right. You feel the love? You feel the love? I do. I feel all the love. Yes. Jessica <laughs> is on the Forbes 30 under 30 list under the education sector for New York on Tech. So basically, in a nutshell, she helps the future create the future. So in addition to being on Forbes, she's been featured on a host of different outlets and websites like BET and CNN and the Huffington Post and now the Path Less Travel series. Yes. Jessica, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you in front of a group of my friends. Yeah, no problem. I'm really excited to be here. So when you invited me, I, was, I jumped at the opportunity. I'm so glad that you did. Just like how in church, when they give you a moment to take out your Bibles, I'm going to give you a moment to take out your phones. Jessica is going to be dropping gems, y'all. And when she does, I need you to grab them up. And make sure that you live tweet this episode using the hashtag TPLTSeries. You got it? I don't think they got it. You got it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Jessica, let's start from the beginning. Yes. So, you actually went to um, college to yep. get a business degree. Mm -hmm. But in your senior year, you realized, like, mm, I don't like business no more. Mm -hmm. And you decided to, once you graduated and got your degree, to go right back in and get um, you know, your graduate degree in technology. Yes. Now, a lot of people, when they realize that the path that they're on isn't panning out to be like what they expected it to be, they kind of wait there for a little bit. Because it's like, man, you know, like, this is what I thought this is supposed to be like. So let me hold on for a little bit. But you didn't hold on. You, you let go. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the mindset that you were in and how you were able to recognize that business was no longer your passion. You wanted to transition into, into technology, so much so that you passed up offers from top firms, JP Morgan. You was like, no thanks, Deloitte, no thanks. <laughs> talk to me about that. Yeah. So, you know, I had an opportunity back in 2009 to study abroad in Hong Kong, and I spent six months there really reading industry reports, um, spending a lot of time trying to understand what the new trends were going to be in terms of leading what 21st century business and 21st century skills look like. Um, and at the time, I was in college. I was an undergrad. I was majoring in accounting, and I was on track to being a CPA. I had internships every single summer after every year of my 
my college career, but at some point you realize that though you are succeeding academically and you are on track to graduating with honors, if you're not dedicated to this field where you're gonna have to sit down and study for the CPA, um, then you have to make some decisions right. <laughs> on whether or not you're going to continue. And what people don't know is that when MySpace.com came out in high school, I was teaching myself how to code. So all the technical skills that I developed, I was self-taught. Before there was Codecademy.com, before there was uh, Udemy.com where you can get all these courses available online, there were actually just really long HTML pages on places like mihente.com or blackplanet.com that were teaching you how to code. Now it's a lot more intuitive because it's such an in-demand skill. But up to that point when I was in college, I was majoring in accounting. I was side hustling, for lack of a better word. I was side hustling and working with a lot of local businesses to help them with their you know, redesigning their digital strategies, making sure they had full functioning websites, making sure that they were um, having, you know, they had the necessary technical infrastructure uh, to actually scale their efforts. And at that point, when you realize that most of your time, the time that you should be spending, um, you know, studying for your licensing exam for the CPA, you're actually dedicating it to all tech stuff. I, I came at a crossroads and Hong Kong was a experience for me where that's where I made the decision, where it was like, if I don't make the decision now, I'm totally gonna regret it. And I think oftentimes when people think about um, it being hard to actually switch careers, I actually thought it would be hard not to switch careers. Because at the end of the day, when you're waking up in the morning and you're staring at yourself in the mirror as you're brushing your teeth, you have to be really proud and really happy with who you are and the person who's staring back at you. And so for me, emotionally, physically, I knew it would actually be harder to stay where I was at as opposed to actually making that leap of faith um, and seeing where technology took me. And it took me all the way here. So I'm really proud of that decision. I'm proud of that decision as well. But guys, I need to let you know that we have a jumper, OK? Because you're talking about leaps of faith. That was yeah. one of many. So when you graduated college, yeah, yeah. See, a jumper. Yeah, you're, we got a jumper on board. Uh, when you graduated college, you were making the big bucks. You were yeah. taking home six figures. And yeah. not many people do that right out the gate. Mm -hmm. You were going so far as making four times the amount of income that your parents brought home. Yeah. Talk to me about how that changed your relationship with money, as well as the relationship with your family and friends being the breadwinner of the crew. Yeah, so what a lot of people don't know is that I'm the first person in my family to get a college education, to get a graduate education. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I'd be, um, you know, when I think about my parents migrated here from Puerto Rico, um, and my prayers are with them right now, they migrated here from Puerto Rico in the 1960s, and they left everything behind. I mean, like shoes, clothes, everything, family members, cousins, lost, long lost uncles, they left everything. Um, and though they came here and they worked in factories their entire life, and I grew up in a low-income community, and. I grew up in um, you know, having my education take place in public schools that were often under-resourced. I think the one thing that my mom always said was, Jessica, you know, the bar for you in society is here, but like my bar for you is like up here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when I thought about the, the first time I actually saw my full-time offer on paper and just recently having learned what my parents actually made because they, they, they didn't never disclose it until I was an adult. Yeah. Um, it was a huge mindset shift where I was like, whoa, going into technology and 
um, actually creating my way into this industry actually has led me in, in a path out of poverty where now I can't only provide just resources for myself, but I can provide resources to my family members. And so I think um, I was making six figures. I definitely, you know, you'll, I'm pretty sure you'll ask about this, but I did leave to, to do New York on Tech full time, and it was right. a really hard decision, but I think that um, for me, my relationship with money was always, uh, it's, it's material, uh, but it's not an indicator of like who I am, what I believe in, and I don't think it necessarily determines where I wanna go. And I think my parents, um, you know, they never equated my success to it being monetary. I think they always equated my success to you come here and you live the life by the decisions that you make as opposed to the default situation that you find yourself in. And I think that that was really powerful for me early on where even making six figures, it wasn't like, ooh, you know, I was like, I'm ooh for you so guys, all right. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So talk to me about how you were able to sustain yourself you know, once you decided to start your nonprofit, because, you know, money ruled the world. Yes, money does rule the world. But to be honest with you, I wasn't one of those people that jumped straight into entrepreneurship. I didn't hate my job or anything like that. I actually really liked my job. I worked really hard to get my job, you know? Um, and I went to grad school for my job. And so at the time, I was um, consulting with public sector agencies and financial services organizations um, and helping them really think about the internal products that they were creating for their, con you know, for their customer base because <clears throat> God knows these, these institutions, you know, they're very IT conservative. Uh, but I think um, I really enjoyed what I was doing. But back in 2015, um, you know, I got a seed grant from Camelback Ventures, and they said, hey, we love your, what you're doing with New York on Tech. We want to invest $50,000 in you if you hit certain metrics, and you, the only thing you have to do is take it full time. And yeah. so I was like, hmm, that's a decision to make. And when I think about all the hard work that had gone in months prior before even getting to this point, you know, New York on Tech was something that we started on the back of Starbucks napkins one very frustrated Labor Day weekend in upstate New York where we were trying to figure out, my co-founder Evan Robinson and I, we were trying to figure out like how was it possible that as public school grads who grew up low income, who were first in our families to do anything, to become entrepreneurs, to be college grads, how did we get here and how do we get our communities here with us? So we like infiltrated the entire Starbucks. We had so many napkins everywhere. They eventually asked us to leave um, <laughs> because we were taking up so much space. But that really, that brainstorming session is what led to the design of New York on Tech. And it just so happened that a few months later, this um, this passion and this passion project that we had, which we never intended to take full time, want someone wanted to invest in it. And I said to myself, well, hey, if it's $50,000, it's not a lot, but I feel like I need to try, um, because if I do fail, I don't think in a year from now I'll be any less employable, and I did have savings, um, so I, I, I was very risk-averse at that time, okay. because I truly didn't have the privilege of just, like, leaving, coming from the background that I come from. Right. So talk to me about your mentors along the way. Because one of the things that you're a stickler about is mentorship. Mm -hmm. And you know, you made it a point to say that although you've been blessed to have mentors throughout your entire career, no one looked like you, mm -hmm. no one shared your backstory, you had no one to relate to. Yes. So talk to me more about why that was an issue for you, why it was so important for you to see yourself represented in the mentors that you had. Mm -hmm. and talk to us about how you got those mentors because everybody is kind of like a delicate dance, right? You want a mentor, but it's like, do you ask? Do mm -hmm. they choose you? Do you choose them? Like, how mm -hmm. does that work? 
Yeah, for sure. So I firmly believe that you cannot be what you cannot see. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's how I feel. I've, I've felt that way ever since I was young. And I think for me, a really strong role model for me on TV was always Sonia Sotomayor. And knowing what, knowing that she grew up in the projects and in the Bronx and also attending public schools, but then went off to do amazing things in her career, it was really important for me to see that. But then when it came into my personal life and the mentors that I had at that time, um, they didn't come from my background. And I think it helped. I don't wanna, I don't wanna ever say that like my mentors, because they didn't have my background or they didn't share my story or they didn't reflect the community that I was from, that they were not helpful. They were super helpful. And it's so important to build allyship across differences anyway. But I think that for me to truly believe that a leader can come from where I was and actually have them in my purview is completely important because there are certain issues that I can't come to certain mentors about because they don't understand the experiences of people of color or they don't understand the, the experiences of women or they don't understand the experiences of people who are literally the first generation in this country to actually keep... Um, keep up the momentum where their last names are gonna leave a legacy behind. You know, I want the Santana family name to mean something and not just that everyone prior to Jessica Santana dropped out. No, I want it to leave a lasting legacy. Um, and I think that when I think about the mentors that I had, like, though professionally they were really helpful and they were really direct, there were certain personal experiences that totally, like, you know, trump certain things that I was going through professionally. And you can't a lot of times separate those two things. And so for me, I think um, it's a really important to have people who reflect your stories and levels of leadership because how could you ever believe that you can also reach those heights if you've never seen anyone else do that? And if anything, that's actually really discouraging. And in the age of social media, all I have to do is go to google.com and see who's on your board, see who is in your leadership. And if I'm not there and no one that I know or no one that like even remotely reflects um, a little bit of not privilege, right? Yeah. Then how could I ever feel like that's a place for me, right? Um, and then in terms of how I got my own mentors, I did so many internships as an undergrad, and I'm a part of so many fellowships now, and none of these relationships um, were formed like forced. They were super, super like natural relationships that formed over time with people that I just kept in touch with. And I think it was really, I think it's really important to establish rapport with people be first before actually asking them to be your mentor because I tried to ask someone to be my mentor before and it didn't go that well. And that yeah. was back when I was like an undergrad and had no business savvy <laughs> or had very little business savvy. Um, but I think just mentorship is extremely important just to, one, you know, really understand, like, how do you actually create a, a good career for yourself? Um, and then also mentors eventually become sponsors, and sponsors actually will take you to new heights. Now let's let's simmer on the sponsorship aspect. Sure. Because I feel like you have gotten every fellowship that they have ever created. Talk <laughs> to me about how we can do a better job of pitching. What are the keys? Yeah. So to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever pitched, unless it was related to like funding for New York on Tech, I've never pitched myself for a fellowship. A lot of the things and a lot of the networks that I'm a part of, like the World Economic Forum, like Pahara Institute, these were never networks that 
I actually pursued myself. There were opportunities where people who were in these networks said, hey, Jessica would be a great addition. Um, so I don't know that I have a lot of advice on how you actually pitch to join a fellowship or to join a program of some sort, but I will say that relationships have been the key to my success, and it's never been like having the right deck or having the right one-pager. It's always been like, you know, Jessica is such a great person and she's doing such amazing work in the community and I've seen her program in action and now I want to join her on that journey. Um, and if my introduction to this opportunity can shape or be a part of her experience in some sort, then I fully intend to do that. And I think that's the frame of mind that a lot of my champions have had. Um, and then in terms of just pitching, you know, when we come, when it comes to fundraising and talking to foundations and sponsors, um, we're still learning, right? We're still learning. Um, but I will say that just be very clear on, on what your asks are, really understand what the organization is trying to accomplish and how you actually fill in that gap. Because a lot of times, um, a lot of people come with so many different ideas, even if you are an entrepreneur, not even an entrepreneur. Right. If you can't create a business case for what it is that you're trying to accomplish in, in a mutual beneficial partnership, um, then a lot of those deals actually fall through. Right, and I think that you hit on a couple of great points because one of the things that I hate, number one, is like somebody wants to work with you but they don't know how. It's like, I want to work with you but I, like you come up with the rest. Yeah. I strongly believe that if you don't know what you bring to the table then maybe you shouldn't be sitting there. I don't know. Yeah. So I'm like, you need, need to one, know what you want from this and know how this can be equally beneficial to us. Mm -hmm. um, but also I encourage everyone to speak up for yourself. It's like mm -hmm. people think that I'm just magically gonna know that Jessica has this awesome thing. You're your own best advocate, so don't ask me how I'm doing on any given day. Don't, I promise you, because I'm gonna tell you. It's like, well, I have this going on. Like, how are you supposed to know how you can help me if I don't tell you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so talk to me about one part of your story that most people don't know about your journey to where you are today. Because it's easy to see like, oh, I watched this girl on TV, I see her in Forbes, you're doing talks in Haiti and across the world, and it's like, she had it made. Talk <laughs> to us about something that most people don't know about your journey. Yeah, no, not, not, I do not have it made. I think like a lot of people are just like, oh my God, Jessica lives such a fabulous life. She's her own boss. And it's like, guys, no, like if anything, I have so many more managers and like stakeholders now trying to watch my every move. And it always makes me um, really cautious about the decisions I make because right now it's not just about, you know, how Jessica sustains herself. We have a team of six people whose salaries that I'm accountable for and a team of like three interns whose salaries I'm accountable for as well. So I can't just do whatever I want. Um, but I will say <clears throat> that when um, I think about the things that maybe people don't know is that they, they haven't seen the backstory to it, you know. It wasn't like, you know, we got this $50,000 and then that's it and then all this money started coming in. It was no, it was like, we got this $50,000, now we have to have a really strong logic model for our programs and actually find more investors because we get one-time grants, those things are great, but it's even better when you can get multi-year commitments from foundations, which we have now, but it wasn't always that way. And I remember <clears throat> um, maybe six months into the entire process thinking to myself like, well, if in six months we raise no money, I'm gonna have to go back. And then no students get opportunities in the community that I'm from to actually explore what a career in technology could look like. And so that level of grit and that level of resilience requires a lot of work. What a lot of people don't know is that I was tinier than this, right? I gained weight in this process. I've lost sleep in this process. I got dark circles in this process. And though on social media, 
media, I never like share my problems because I truly believe they were first world problems and truly no one ever said like, Jessica, you have to do, do this. This was a decision that I made. Um, I, don't, I don't complain about it because being in Hong Kong and then having internships in Sao Paulo as an undergrad and just being able to see how other people in the world are living and I, have, I just really don't feel like I have any excuses to not be great because I have shelter over my head. I have a good income coming in. I can pay my bills Listen, and I should just be happy. Girl, you are the epitome of great. Thank you. <laughs> You know, one thing that I realized that I think for me, most people don't know about your story is that you were adopted. Yes. And that back in the day, you were in a little riffraff gang. It wasn't like, you know, <laughs> it wasn't any criminal activity, but you know, it's like kids being obnoxious for and sure. silly. So talk to me about how being adopted and how being in a gang changed your lens of sure. life. Yeah. And so I wasn't a part of the Bloods or Crips. It wasn't like that. Um, <laughs> It, was, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't criminal activity. It was more like, you know, you have your crew and you dance on trains and you're hustling for dollars, which is why I always advocate for kids dancing on trains because I know what it means to not dance on a train. If you're not making an income dancing on the train, that means that you're doing something else that's gonna generate income that actually is not good for your community. So every time someone gives people a side eye when all they wanna do is dance on a pole and they're not hitting you, I kinda, you know, I have to take, I, sometimes I have to check myself because I'm kinda like, no, they could be doing a lot worse things. Right. You know, just let them dance. Train pole, um, train pole. The train pole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The train pole. <laughs> yeah, clarification. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> so yeah, so you know, you had your crew and we used to just be super obnoxious, right? Like banging on trains, being really, really loud. And um, at the time, you know, that, that's just what we, what we did. We were fun and we were lively, but it was not, there was never any um, malicious intent behind it. And I think a lot of times uh, that narrative gets silenced because there aren't enough stories in the media of the people who are loud and super obnoxious and maybe a little hood like, I was, right? Or I still have hood in me. Mm -hmm. But like... Uh, you sophisticated. Yeah, ratchet. You know, sophisticated. ratchet. Yeah. You know, they, there's not enough stories about like, hey, you know, I come from here. Right. This is where I've made it. Unless you're like celebrity Jay-Z, right? Right. Um, no, it's like there's talent out there and there's talent in these communities and you should totally uh, want to not overlook them and actually bring them to the table to the conversation because though they may not, you may not always agree with their perspectives, it doesn't mean they don't have any value to add. I love it. So, right? Isn't she awesome? You started New York on Tech with your best friend. Yes. Now you know, especially in this day and age, the best friend you have today may not be the best friend you have tomorrow. Yes. You guys have been together for some time now, friends yeah. for some time. What were some of the boundaries and legal structures that you had to put in place in order to make sure that your business survived whether or not the friendship did? Yeah, absolutely. So Evan Robinson, he is my best friend, my co-founder, my confidant, my brother. 
Um, him and I actually met in 2009 during an Ernst & Young Leadership Summit, and we realized that we grew up in the same neighborhood, and we both went to Syracuse University together. And because of that, there was just a natural bond and a natural affinity to each other, and we developed a really strong relationship in undergrad and in grad school um, before even starting New York on Tech. So when it came to protecting our organization, you know, nonprofits have bylaws, they have board of directors, they have boards of advisors. We don't make any decisions without their input. And so, um, one, I truly believe that if I were to pass away tomorrow, New York on Tech will still live on because I know how relentless Evan is about the vision that we have to serve students across all of the five boroughs in New York City to ensure that they have access to opportunities that by default of the communities or the zip codes they represent, they don't have access to. I have no doubt in my mind that he'll continue that legacy. Um, but from a more tactical standpoint, yeah, nonprofits have bylaws and they have boards and we can't even sometimes make decisions just by ourselves because we have an idea. There are a lot of things that we together have other people that make decisions on behalf um, of NYLT for us. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't agree, but at the end of the day, how you build your team and who you invite to your board as a nonprofit um, is really important. You wanna make sure that they're equally as invested, and I can say that our board members are super invested, and they've been with us since New York on Tech was just an idea and has you know, have helped us get you know, to this stage or even to the Forbes list, and I feel that without Evan, regardless of um, if, you know, without Evan, you know, regardless of all the success, you know, it would have been even more hard. Right. Um, because entrepreneurship is lonely as it is, but he has made this journey extremely fun for me. I love it. I think the key there was that you got a board. You got to have yeah. somebody to hold you both accountable, accountable as well. For sure. So I know that you guys are taking steps to close the diversity gap. Talk to us about how we can take steps as a country to close the pay gap. Because coins are important. Yeah, coins are very important. You know, I think that I think that a lot of companies just look at the numbers and they'll say like, you know, I want 50% women, I want 50%, you know, men. But then like you left transgenders, right, out right. of that conversation. You left people out that don't even identify with any of those out of the conversation. Um, so for me, I'm always more impressed with companies that don't look for a 50-50 split and they look more for how do I actually keep, like, if I have 15% women today, mm -hmm. how do I actually take these women and actually give them an opportunity um, to excel at the leadership level rather than them actually having to find um, opportunities elsewhere. And so for me, the way you address the pay gap is one, recognizing that you may be a part of the problem um, because transparency is saying that these are what the numbers are and our authenticity is actually saying, hey, I'm actually part of the reason why the numbers are this way. Um, and recognizing that, <clears throat> and recognizing and publishing those reports, um, it's, it's not enough to just say like, these are the numbers, you know, you have to take action. And I think the cool thing about technology that I love is that, um, you know, you, we're really into listening to our users, it's products first, and I think diversity up until this point and inclusion up to this point has not been treated as a product, it's been treated as a charity, and until we actually see the business return on investment for how you get more people of color and women of color and women and LGBTQA and just everyone, um, at a seat at the table in a way that's equitable and fair, then I don't think we actually solve it. I think we actually continually to perpetuate the systems that don't, um, 
you know, that don't let us flourish in the first place. So I don't know how we get there, but I think the first step is recognizing that, um, you know, you are also a part of the problem and that numbers are not enough and you can't treat diversity like charity because if you do, then you don't actually make any, you don't make a difference. I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. Now, Talk to me about this Forbes life, darling. How did your <laughs> life change after making the Forbes list? Yeah. I see y'all be going on little trips. You know, I follow on Instagram. It's like, ooh, we in Israel today. <laughs> we having a conference with Diddy. Oh my God, you're so funny. I'm, I'm living through you, girl. <laughs> um, you know, being on the Forbes 30 under 30 list is a great honor and a great recognition. Um, but I, I still go, I still work. <laughs> I think a lot of people are just like, oh, she's on the list, and all she does is travel. It's like, no, I'm on the list. I get to all of the events, but like, midnight hits and then I'm back at home and I'm busting out emails that I didn't get to actually send out during the day. So it's a fabulous life in terms of having that stamp of credibility. The network that they provide is really fantastic. Um, I think I've met some of my closest confidants through the Forbes 30 and the 30 list network. And so if I had mentors before, I feel like I have a plethora of mentors now. Um, but I will say that um, everyone on that list is still working. Um, and everyone on the list is still hustling and there's no one that just takes the honor and kind of just sits on it and takes advantage of all the resources without going home and realizing that there's work that still needs to be done. Right, and I think that even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there, you know? So it's like once you achieve certain levels of success or any type of success, you have to work on maintaining it. Yeah. So talk to me about the plans for scaling your business. What's next for New York on Tech? Yes. So, hmm, Nuffy, you are Give gonna, me the juice. You're going to get me to talk, and yeah. I'm not supposed to. Um, no, you know, <laughs> um, so, you know, I think New York on Tech, we are really invested in making sure that students in New York City have opportunities to <clears throat> gain um, the skills and the internships that actually lead them to successful lives in tech. Um, but I also recognize that the issue is an, a local issue in terms of how it manifests here, but this issue is also relevant in Austin, is relevant in Chicago, is relevant in Los Angeles, and so, we are um, trying to figure out what a national expansion looks like at the moment, <clears throat> but I think we're taking steps to make sure that before we go anywhere else that our platform in New York City has been solidified and that we wouldn't be making any programmatic changes um, to what we do in other areas because it might not work the same. Um, I'll also say that all of our partners now, they, are, they actually have offices everywhere, so we've already been in conversations with them about, you know, if you're supporting us here in New York City, then let's just take the model to an, in, another city and see how it goes. And so that's more like 2018, 2019, uh, but right now we're just really focused on having a good, successful uh, school year with the students we have now and building out our alumni programs. I love it. So. Authenticity is important to you as it is to me. I feel like being your authentic self is like that part on the job description or, the, or you, know, um, you know, your resume that nobody tells you about. It's like the thing that everybody's looking for but they never tell you. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times we often show up to these jobs and in these roles and we feel like we have to be somebody that we're not in order to fit in. I've been there. So talk to me about what working in predominant predominantly white and male um, environments has taught you about yourself mm -hmm. and being true to who you are. Yeah. 
Um, so I'll be honest with you, I'm not scared of those spaces. Um, I'm not scared of like men and I'm not scared of white people. I mean, like, it's just, I'm not. I think that like, I think um, <laughs> you just can't be, right? Like what are they, like what are you gonna do? <laughs> For real. I think, you know, I think, but I, but I also recognize that that's not the narrative for everyone, you know, and I can't sit here as a Latina um, and as a woman and just, just speak on behalf of an entire population of people. But I will tell you this, I will say that for me, authenticity is what I lead with um, because I don't have the privilege to lead with anyone else, lead with anything else. Has that come to a cost at my career? I'm not sure yet, right? I'm still really young in my career. Um, has it stopped a business deal from coming through? I'm not sure because these things you never know, right? Was I getting paid the same as other consultants at Deloitte and Accenture? I don't know because no one's transparent about it, right? right. But I will say that <clears throat> every day I have to make a decision on whether or not I'm going to bring my whole self or not. And I choose to bring my whole self no matter what um, kind of impact that's gonna have in my career because it's just too hard to not be me. You know, I've tried it, you know. While everyone may have been going through imposter syndrome in, 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 you know, in their careers, I was going through imposter syndrome in college, right? Where I was like the only Latina accounting major, I was the only Latina in my graduate program in technology, and so I went through all that already. So when I came to the workforce, I was just tired. Right. I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, you're gonna have to just take me for what I am, you right. know? And you, I would just like want you, I would just want you to let me know if I'm ever overstepping any boundaries. But for me, I was always a top performer. I like skipped an entire promotion, um, like, you know, title when I was at Accenture. And so for me, it's like, I let my work talk for it first. My accent is never going away. My hair is straight today, but my hair is usually very curly. Right. Um, but these are decisions that I make every day and I'm, I have to be proud of them because they're who I am and what I was born with. I love it. Everyone give her a round of applause. Jessica, thank you so thank much you. for allowing us to talk with you today and for having the confidence and the passion to not only turn your passion into a lucrative career, but to create pathways for others. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This is totally inspirational. Two very, very young ladies have their heads on their shoulders, know what they want to do, know what they want to say, know how to say it. It's an inspiration for those of us who are a little bit older. Mentorship among peers, and that's what we just saw. Mentorship among peers is so very, very important, and we should take that into our 30s, into our 40s, into our 50s, and into my age. No further. Anyway, thank you, Jessica, for your insights. Ladies and gentlemen, can we give both Jessica and Nephi another round of applause? <laughs>